You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where John Mills and I are just sitting around on a lovely day because, well, it's what we do in the 602 Club and I'm so excited to be here for this supplemental episode and I hope you are too. Uh, John, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going good. Sunlight, get it off me. Get it off me. I'm running into the 602 Club. No, 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 no. Oh, goodness. (laughs) It's it's actually pretty funny that you say that because uh, it rained for about three weeks up here or so, and it was cold, and it's still very cold, but the sun has been out the last few days, and it's been clear, and yeah, it's uh, it's kind of nice change of pace. Yeah, we've had uh, sunny and warm, and now we're going to get rainy and cold, so perfect time to saddle up to the bar and uh, get a nice warm drink and settle in and uh, talk some Star Wars, I think. Yeah, yeah. Before we uh, talk a little Star Wars, and I do mean a little because we got a novella we're going to be covering, want to just remind everybody that the 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And of course, you can also find us at Trek.FM. That's our own website. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We're on Twitter at Trek FM. If you'd like to contact us about anything, have any thoughts or feedback about any of the shows that we do, just go to trek.fm slash contact. Just choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come right to me. Uh, You can leave us a voicemail. We'd love to have some more voicemails from our listeners. Look at the sidebar on the show page or go to speedpipe.com slash trek.fm. And if you would like to interact with John and I and any of the listeners there that we have on Drag FM, you'll want to go to the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook. Just type Babel in the search field on Facebook or go to the website at Trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. Now, John, one of the things that uh, they are doing on the journey to The Force Awakens mm-hmm. is ramping up with some stories... About some characters that we saw in a special Vanity Fair issue that came out all about The Force Awakens yep. just about two and a half months ago. And there were a bunch of different pictures of the different aliens we, we'd see. And then they did this really cool collage mm-hmm. of aliens in Maz Kanata's castle. Yes. And one of them was a very interesting character. She was dressed all in black uh, and kind of uh, sprawled out on one of the other large aliens. Very large alien. Yeah, not as Jabba-sized, but pretty big. He looked ambulatory at the very least. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So this story is all about that character. We came to know that her name is Bazine Natal, And we learn all about her in this book called The Perfect Weapon. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. And, you know, this book really, to me, I I just want to talk about the feel for you. Because to Mm -hmm. me, now I haven't really read too much of them. I've kind of read bits and pieces. But, you know, when they did the books, Tales from Jabba's Palace or, Mm -hmm. you know, Tales from Mos Eisley's Cantina, 
that's kind of what this book feels like to me. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I think you nailed it there. Instead of releasing a, uh, you know, an anthology like, you know, Tales from Java's Palace or Mos Eisley Cantina were there. They seem to be releasing these one shots. And, uh, you know, I like that um, because it's it it does have that feel uh, and it does have uh, I'm glad that you called out Tales from Java's Palace because of where Bazin Natal is seen, you know, Maz Kanata's. And so it it is a very evocative move um, to give us that feel. And all of those stories were stories that were not essential to understanding or even enjoying the original movies, but they they could enhance it so that when you saw that character in the background, you could say, oh, yeah, I remember when. And so I think that this is very much in that vein. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And one of the things that I think it is interesting is going to be, you know, reading these before The Force Awakens come out. And and I think we're going to kind of wrap up with some speculation about really what's how will this fit in, you know, because there do seem to be some clues in the story. But at the same time, um, it's interesting because just in general, this book kind of gives us an, an a feeling of the universe as controlled by the new Republic. And uh, what was also very interesting, just for anybody who is wondering about where this book does fall, uh, like many of the Star Wars books, one of the nice things is they have a chronology in the front. And so you have Return of the Jedi, then Aftermath. Then these books haven't come out yet, but Aftermath, Life Debt, Aftermath, Empire's End, New Republic Bloodline, which is going to be another Claudia Gray book. Yay. And then this book, Perfect Weapon, ebook original. So this book, and then the very next thing on the timeline so far is The Force Awakens. Right. So this book does seem to take place, at least as far as we can tell, as close to The Force Awakens as we've gotten yet, which... Is very interesting, I think, just in its placement. Yeah, I I, I agree. This um, I don't know whether they intend it or not, but that gives it sort of the feel of the Tartakovsky uh, cartoon series, where it's like this is what happens right beforehand. Um, now, this does not have the same import because it's not dealing with the main characters, but the quest that she goes on, you can't help but wonder, does this tie into the one of the major plot lines I like I'm left with the impression because of the timing. I don't know if you are left with the same impression that this is going to tie in directly to one of the, the plot drivers, something that somebody's trying to get in this movie, uh, possibly something we've seen in a preview. It could be. Yeah, no, this, it definitely could be. Uh, it, it does feel like, you could almost start before the crawl of, you know, The Force Awakens, Episode 7, previously on Star Wars, yeah. you know, and this would have been one of the story points that they would have touched on almost. It, it kind of has that feel. It it does, and, like, uh, primarily because what she's... I mean, do you want to get into the 
sort of the meat of the plot, the driver. Yeah, of it. Well, you know what? We'll t- let's talk about the story first, and then I think that's a good idea before we kind of talk about the characters in the story. But yeah, okay. go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, she's on a quest to obtain something that uh, apparently a lot of people want, and this something is contained within a case, a silver case that seems to have no lock or anything. Now, this is a minor spoiler. You know that she's going after something very early in the short story. So I don't feel that we're spoiling anything that's going to dissuade someone from... Spoilers. Reading it, yeah. And I think, let's just say, um, we will spoil this book for you. So uh, if you haven't read it yet, maybe you could you know, skip ahead to the ratings and see what we rate it to see if you want to read it. Um, but I, I feel like this story is best if we actually talk through the story I, points. I agree Because with that's you. where the meat's going to come from. I agree. So so somebody can put it on pause. It's, it, I mean, it's, how many pages was it? Like, because I read it on the Kindle, so I couldn't get a page count. It's like 60, 70 pages, something like that. Honestly, I, I think on my iPad, I had it and it was like 47 pages pages quote unquote yeah know? okay so, so I mean, it's it's pretty you can knock this out pretty quick so go ahead put us on pause read it come back welcome back uh so yeah she's going on the quest to obtain the small silver case and uh, like this case obviously because they never tell you what's in the case it's sort of like the case from pulp fiction what's in the box i don't know you know just it's what everybody wants this um, is the classic mcguffin yeah Exactly. Yeah. What's in your hat box? Uh, I use that to hunt elephants. Oh, you hunt elephants? <laughs> so the way that Delilah Dawson constructs her um, makes her a very compelling character, gives her a really compelling backstory and makes me want to read more stories with her, regardless of the film. In my book, that makes this an extremely successful expanded universe story. Because the original character created is one that I will care about and want to read about absolutely regardless of what happens in the film. What she's doing has impact on the film, obviously, because they won't tell us what's in the case, which infuriated me because I want to know what's in the case. And I think I know what's in the case, but I don't know what's in the case. So I want to read more about the character. And so I think that Building her backstory, showing her as that orphan who gets taken in by a guy who uses her for what he later admits, Clota admits, is the long con, is brilliant because it shows her as a compelling character who her trust issues make sense and her her independence makes sense and her the way she regards everybody as either a tool to be used or discarded is really fascinating, but at the same time sympathetic because you know how she got there. So she's interesting regardless of whether she's in The Force Awakens just in a background shot, whether she has a spoken line. I don't care. I want to read another story with her. What was so interesting about her background was the fact that she is almost like a Jedi in the sense that, you know, the Jedi would find very young children, almost babies, and bring them to the temple and raise them. And that's kind of what's happened to this character. You know, she's 
been picked up as an orphan, somebody who has nobody else, and raised to be a bounty hunter. You know, a, a, a person with very special skill set. Um, she's lethal. She's deadly. I mean, she is, for all intents and purposes, as Clota calls her at the end of the book, the perfect weapon. Right. Um, you know, he's raised her to be that, and he's kept her that way by being cold, calculating everything else. In fact, she kind of feels almost like the Jessica Jones of, um, Ooh, good pull. You know, uh, of the Star Wars universe because he's made sure to kill everybody around her that she's gotten close to, so that he's kept her this very hard, cold calculating figure that cares nothing about anybody else except survival so really uh, interesting character work here with her and i like you said it's it's a fascinating idea you know uh, uh, and we talked about you know when we talked all about the prequels of the psychology of the characters and how deep the psychology actually runs and here in you know 40, 50 some odd pages, the psychology of this character is very compelling. Um, and I, I think you're right. It made it such a more interesting story than one might expect when you first dive into it. Yeah. And what makes her even more compelling and interesting is all of these things are true. What you point out about how, you know, Clota killed everybody around her, kept her in reserve, made sure that she would always be, you know, something that he could use as a reserve weapon. What makes her really interesting is she doesn't lose her humanity. Yes, it's true that she is this, you know, cold and distant person. But for instance, she has the opportunity to kill Ori uh, in the story, but she doesn't. She knocks him out. As opposed to Clota, who in the same situation, sure, he doesn't. He doesn't kill her outright, but he does leave her to a rather, like, what he believes to be a rather gruesome uh, death. Like, I, I mean, if anything, his choice, his belief of what's going to happen, it would have been more merciful for him to kill her in that situation. Instead of wall her up and wait for these giant hornets to come and kill her, like, and eat her. Like, that's that's even worse. You know, like, there are times where, like, just putting a bullet in somebody is you know, the the more noble choice, I guess, in a story like this. But he leaves her to be eaten alive. And so she doesn't do that with Ori. She uh, she does still have that, that spark of humanity about her. And I think that's what makes her a compelling character is even though she has all of this reason to behave exactly like Clota, she doesn't. Yeah, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I do. I think it, it's a really interesting thing because as self-serving as she is, you know, looking to make sure that she stays alive, you know, even at the beginning of the book where she's working as a bouncer in this, you know, club and, yeah. you know, rebuffing people that keep coming up to her because, you know, from what they can tell of her, uh, she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um and you know she keeps continuing to turn them down you know she has a sense of of arrogance about her but she never 
she ne- never treats people as disposable, you feel like, as, with utter disdain mm. as if, like, they don't exist at all to her. You know, they just... Uh, her, They're just kind of losers to her. You know, like those guys yeah. that come up to her in the bar. Those guys are just kind of losers that she just deals with, whatever. You know, but it, but it, it, it's not that disdain of treating somebody as if they're not even human, almost. Her reactions and her punishments are proportional to the threat. The guy yes, that puts his yes. hand on her loses the use of his hand. Yeah. The she guy who's an incompetent young newbie boob, he just gets knocked out. Clota, when he when he makes his move, he gets what he deserves. Possibly yes. a little better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although well, <laughs> I mean I did I did really like, even though it's sort of like a, a traditional sort of trope, I did like the whole idea of him being choked out at the end. And he's like, I taught you everything. I didn't teach you this. And she's like, that's why I went to other people so that I could learn what you couldn't teach me. I was like, yeah, all right. Yay for you. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, she, she has this kind of Batman-esque quality to her. Like she's yeah. gone around the world and learned all of these different traits. So it, it's almost as if Batman is fighting Raja Ghoul and he's like, I didn't teach you this. And he's yeah. like, I know that's why I went to the other school and learned, you know, thus and so. That's why you're going to die. Yeah. Uh, it's very. And one of the things that Dawson does in the book, and I really appreciate, is that she's able to, you know, kind of create these fully rounded characters by drawing subtly on tropes that you're very familiar with if you're a geek. So yeah. that you fully understand the character without, I mean, because she has very limited page count here. So. What she's doing, I think, is very smart. Um, I do have a question for you real quick before we talk a little bit more about some of the story points. Sure. Do you think that that would work to somebody who's maybe just getting into Star Wars for the first time? Maybe isn't quite as familiar with some of the tropes that we know and could fill in blanks? That's a really great question. And I would say that, yes, it works specifically because it, it also establishes what Star Wars is, which is a postmodern revisit of old Westerns and old, uh, you know, uh, action adventures and old swashbucklers. She fits in that sort of ideal. And I think that to answer your question, yes, this is a great way to introduce somebody to that, to say this is what Star Wars is, is taking something you're familiar with putting it in this different setting and mixing it up a little bit and making it just that much more interesting because you understand how it was put together, but it's been given a different feel. And that's something that, too, what I loved about this is that it kind of fits in right with something you would have seen like in Clone Wars. You know, this story feels very much more in line with the Star Wars that understands that Star Wars is much bigger than just the original trilogy and and what you felt Mm -hmm. there. This really seems to fit within something that you would see with the Clone Wars and Hondo and Naka or a character like that. Some Mm. of the things we've seen in Rebels. I mean, so that's what I love is that they're embracing the fuller storytelling that George and Dave Filoni invented with the prequels and the Clone Wars to allow, and even the aliens that they have Mm -hmm. in here, these kind of like Hornet, Geonosian type 
feel yeah, to them. Yeah, I'm that, glad you said that. They do feel Geonosian. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it, but it's like Geonosian, yet just another type of insectoid alien that fits very much within the feeling of Star Wars that you could only have done if the Clone Wars existed and you realize that insectoid-type aliens are a part of that universe in that way. Yeah, and and I think you touch on something else as well. The idea of those side stories, this is very much explored in Clone Wars as well, um, of the butterfly effect, that nobody is acting in a vacuum, that this character is doing something that is going to have an impact, whether she realizes it or not, that is fairly major to the unfolding of galactic events. So every single person who makes a choice in the line affects the final result of what we see. What she does here, even though it won't be uh, what we would consider vital to seeing episode seven, will inform what happens. Well, and that brings me back around to what we were talking about with the story elements, because she's hired to do a job to find a box that an old stormtrooper had with him. Mm -hmm. She's hired by a cloaked figure with a modulated voice, so she can't tell who it is. So, Mm -hmm. hmm, I wonder who that might be. Um, (laughs) And these troopers are people who were, well, it all comes back to Endor, uh, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, these troopers were on Endor. So, again, all of these things kind of playing back within places that we have seen, we know. I mean, obviously, we've seen this with Aftermath. Um, but, obvious, uh, too, the last thing that we saw was Return of the Jedi in this universe. Yeah. So, and that that's the big last engagement that we know of for the Empire on film is indoor, even though we know from Lost Stars, if we talked about in this show, uh, Jakku is, seems to be the big last stand of the Empire before it kind of disappears to its yeah. Argentina-like area of the galaxy to become the First Order. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm just... I'm, I want to I wanna ask you point blank. Do you think it was... Uh, do you think that it was Kylo Ren speaking to her in the hologram? Even if it's not Kylo Ren, it could be one of the Knights of Ren. Because they, you know, there's that scene in the trailer where the, he's surrounded by these knights and they're all wearing helmets similar to his. Yeah. But they don't have the cloaks pulled up over their helmet. Yeah. So my, it, it could be any of them. Uh, but my... My feeling is that it is Kylo Ren because that makes it make sense to really fit in with Mm. it's subtle, it's alluding to, but it's not telling you. But then once you see the movie, you're like, oh, okay, I get this now. You know, I, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I can agree with you. I like there, there was a, I I thought there might've been a hint at the end of the story that it was actually Cloda in disguise. Uh, spurring oh, her on to the mission, yeah. which also works, but I also like the reading of it as Ren. Like it, and that's what I think, uh, you know, that speaks again to the strength of the story is that either interpretation works. It works perfectly fine either way. And having it be Kylo Ren be in the hologram actually gives it more story import. So that's an even, you know, an even cooler read in my, in my book. 
Well, and that was my thinking just in general is how do you, because we've talked about this quite a bit, you know, you need to make these books worth the read and the money. Now, one of the things that's wonderful about an ebook, it's like $199, $299, so it's not like you're spending a ton of cash. Yeah. But to make this worth it and having read, my thought was how do you make it better than alluding to somehow in the film or at least seeing somehow in the film that Kylo Ren has been looking for this, as we know, this lightsaber of Vader's um and or luke's lightsaber so it could be either yeah lightsaber uh because we haven't talked about the fact that vader's lightsaber is also what did luke do with that did he just throw it away did he keep it uh, it fell down the shaft that's what i always thought because he okay, cuts off his hand fallen, uh, but so did it get blown up what happens yeah so i mean that that was just my other guess was that maybe he's also looking for that so it could be Luke's lightsaber, or it could be maybe Vader's. See, I that's think, just a random, a very random guess on my part. I, I honestly, I think that in the case is the the Anakin slash Luke's lightsaber from Empire Strikes Back, because I think that so this stormtrooper just have to be carrying it around on indoor in a box. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know why the stormtrooper would have it. Uh, I have. No earthly idea why that would make sense at all. But at the same time, I mean, what else could be in there? Like the only other thing I can possibly think is that uh, there would what be. If it's, what if it's the helmet? What if it's Vader's helmet? Maybe Ooh. we see that in the uh, trailer that he has the helmet, but we have no idea when Ren got that helmet. So what if this That's is the helmet great, of Darth Vader? I like that. I like that thought best of all. Because the other thing I was thinking was, is it plans for some sort of new weapon or something like that? And I'm like, I hope it's Death Star three, <laughs> Starkiller base. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> no, I like the I like the Vader's helmet thought. Uh, my impression of the case, I'm going to go back and reread it because my impression of the case was it was smaller than that. But well, you remember the helmet's also burned up and and it's yeah, you know it's, true. it's gotten smaller because it's been. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> the, what it's the plastic thing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's shriveled up and, and it, you know, when you look at yeah. it on the, on film, it definitely looks as though it's kept enough shape so you know what it used to be. Yeah. But it also looks like, you know, when you, you burn plastic, it does that thing where it kind of pulls itself in and gets smaller yeah. and smaller. That's no, I, what that helmet it, looks like. It works. It works. I God, I like if it. it was Vader's helmet, that would be so cool. Now I want to. Now I have to find out. I have to find out yeah. what is specifically in that <laughs> box. I mean, obviously, if they're not going to tell Damn us, what's you in the, Dawson for not telling us. If they're not going to tell us, I'm left with the impression we've. It's got to be the thing at the beginning of the movie that they're after. Yeah. It has to oh, be what yeah. they're going after. And so, like that's why mentally I sort of lean a little bit toward plans for something because that would make sense for people to be chasing after those as opposed to Vader's helmet. It's Darth Vader's USB drive? <laughs> he just pulls no. it out of his chest thing right yeah, there? Yeah, right. You that's, know? That's, like, what, that's what those three red, red things were. Okay, they, they okay. Were USB that, I thought one of those is, you know, Triumph the Comic Dog was just your mommy <laughs> to come pick you up. So. What if it was just a very complex game of uh, Simon? You know, remember <laughs> the lights? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh God. Well, you know, um, let's talk a little bit more just kind of in depth about the characters because we have three main characters here and, um, what, what I thought was really interesting with Bazine is that there's a lot made in this book, and it, it's an interesting thing, obviously, John, in, in the place we live uh, now, in the time that we live, you know, we, with uh, fangirls and the way that we deal with uh, fan properties and female characters. and But there was a lot made in this book that I thought was really interesting about the looks of the character because her outfit is... It feels like the the classic Mara Jade outfit where it's the leather, the all form-fitting leather, black, long sleeves, but she's wearing the skull cap so that all you see is the beauty of her face. And apparently she's, a she's you know, a, a wonderful-looking woman as well because all these men keep hitting on her. And yet, at the same time, she's, she's deadly and she's serious. <laughs> it, it was like... Uh, Catwoman as a bounty hunter. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I liked that bit too because then they they turn that and they play on that because when she shows Ori, kind of what's behind the mask that she puts on, yeah, which is somebody who's you know when she takes off the skull cap, she doesn't have all of her hair because she's been burned. Yeah, and 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 literally burned by Kolda. In, yeah. in a in an op gone bad um and I thought that was really interesting that you're you're playing with these expectations of of a, a character like this who's beautiful and yet is hiding her deformity as she hides all of herself from everybody and mm-hmm. just really well done again the psychology here of this character is really fascinating I agree yeah uh I, 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 th- I think you're right. There is a Mara Jade-esque uh, feel to her. Um, and I think that the the skull cap is interesting. Having it be a, a deformity that she hides, as it were, is interesting in and of itself because it speaks to how, I mean, in a sense, with the prequels, what we found out with Vader, which was... The idea that somebody doesn't get to be this way just from birth, that their life shapes them. And so she's a product of the life that she has led and the choices that she's made. And so I think that that, that skullcap and that those burns become very emblematic, just like Vader, of she's living in the life that she has created for herself. And in terms of her looks and wearing the skin-tight outfit, it's very much addressed by the idea that it's a weapon in and of itself, you know, because guys underestimate her because she is pretty. And so she's like, okay, well, you know what? I'll use that to my advantage. Sure. Beauty is a weapon. Yeah, absolutely. What did you think about what we learned about Delphi Kolda and just kind of with the way that he is like an evil Mr. Miyagi? Ha! Uh, you know, I, I thought that he was, um, I think he called it, uh, properly earlier in the, in the conversation where you, you talked about him as sort of a Ra's al Ghul character, um, where he presents himself as the only one that she can trust. But in the end, uh, it, it's merely his 
he he makes he convinces her that she can trust him simply so he can use her, which is exactly like Ra's al Ghul. Ra's al Ghul creates, you know, Bruce Wayne who becomes Batman strictly because it's useful to him. And it, it has nothing to do with genuine emotion. You know, it, it actually has to do with just, you know, it's useful to me if I make you into this. And so I, I think that's, uh, I think Ra's al Ghul is a really uh, good reference to make there. Did you ever play the Force Unleashed game? Of course. Okay. Um, there is a character in that story, uh, Master Ram Kota. Yeah. And that's who this character reminded me of. Really? Um, yeah, that's what kept coming into my mind as I was reading this because he has the eye patch, um, you know, he has the the limp and everything. I mean, he's he's very, um, you know, he was an, a Jedi master, you know, at one point, and yet, um, you know, now he's, you know, he's he's trying to stay away and then he becomes kind of somebody that and he doesn't have an eye patch in the game but for some reason I remembered him with one anyway um but yeah he just for some reason that's kind of what I was picturing this guy with more of a limp but with that look so I don't know why but that's what came into my mind and and of course too you know he takes all of this experience and pours it into these people to turn them into to living weapons, which I thought was really interesting um, because, uh, yeah, I don't know. That was just what came into my mind. It's really strange. But the whole time reading the hmm. book, all I was picturing, and maybe it was it was because it was Kolda and Coda. See, for me, so. I, uh, I, I consistently pictured him, uh, if there are any UFC, old school UFC fans out there, I pictured him like Tank Abbott, uh, who actually <laughs> had a limp um, by the end of it all. So I, I I do I think he in my head he looks like Tank Abbott, and I think that works because Tank Abbott was the kind of guy you would look at you'd be like oh look at the beer belly on that guy but then he would you know I mean granted he didn't it didn't ever translate to the UFC but you know he was a pit fighter he you know you'd misjudge this guy to your own peril. What did you think? Okay, you know and, and yeah, Coda, Colda, you know we we I think we already talked about so much of what he does in the story beforehand you know he's i don't think he's as rich and deep as a character as as what we do get there with um bazine obviously because that's really who we're spending our most time with and they're really diving into uh kolda just seems like like you said he really is if you want to know his character in an easy to understand way watch batman begins and raz al ghul that's who this character really is um and I think that's a perfect way of explaining him. Yeah. What did you think of this Ori character? You know, the Slicer, uh, great reference to the Clone Wars cartoon yeah. with a Pantoran and, of course, the um, prequels in general because uh, GL himself, the notorious GL, a Pantoran uh, who shows up in the Clone yeah. Wars too. So, I mean, uh, what did you think about that? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was a nice tie-in. Um, they've done a lot of things with the new expanded universe that has called back and solidified all of the world building that happened in the prequels and the Clone Wars, which I think is to be commended. 
because it very much reinforces the idea. I think that they, I think that little touches like this very much take the idea that Marvel's been trying to build of it's all connected and doing it very successfully by not necessarily tying together all of the plot lines in a specific way, but taking aspects of characters, races, and situations that we know and calling back to them so that they're not vital. Like you don't need to know about the Pantorans to read the story and enjoy the character. But if you know the Pantorans and paid attention during the Clone Wars, you will see that he's a Pantoran and you will say, ah, nice. And it feels like family. What I love about this is that the Star Wars universe is benefiting from the fact that Disney has tried this. It's all connected with Marvel and had varying success mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what uh, I'm seeing so far is that Disney is a and 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 Lucasfilm specifically and their story group are trying for the most part to make each and everything important in its own place and resonate with the whole but at the same time you know letting them have for the most part except for aftermath having the toys that they need to make it successful and that's what i think this book does is we know this book is not going to be heir to the empire kind of thing where we're trying to be episode seven, eight, nine. It is yeah. meant to be a small story to tell a small character's role and how they're going to play in somehow to that upcoming film. Yeah. But then what they do with that story is really, I think, is so interesting. So uh, trying to fit all this in together, I, I I think they're doing a really fantastic job, and in a way that even I think Marvel struggled with, you know, with yeah. with Agents Shield and all that stuff. So uh, I'm very pleased. Um, you know, I'm very pleased. So John, uh, talking through all this, um, what would you end up rating this book? Do you think? I mean, it's hard for me to rate like a short story. But um, just on principle, uh, you know, I'll go ahead and I will uh, give it five stars because, again, oh, wow. yeah. again, like it's a short story that I enjoyed reading, regardless of how well it ties in to The Force Awakens or regardless of how well it, uh, you know, it works. And it, like it just it works in the universe. It's a good story. Like I'd enjoy reading it regardless of whether it was a uh, journey to The Force Awakens. Well, and uh, that's so interesting. I think my first thought was is that this was about a three and a half star book, you know. But after we talked about it, uh, I'm raising my my vote up to four stars. I think nice. this is a really solid book. I think it's really fun. It's really interesting, and with what we talked about, I think it's really going to be cool to see the ways in which it does fit in. And the promise of this book it, again is is very different. And that's where I can enjoy the very tight storytelling. But as you said, Delilah Dawson has created a, a very interesting character out of cloth. I mean, she's yeah. she's pretty much probably invented what this character is. And I think she's done 
such a great job. It makes me feel the thing that I ended up feeling for the way that they grew the Asajj character in the Clone Wars. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Good. Yes. Completely agree. Yeah. Fantastic background, which makes for a rich character. So very excited. Um, I'm glad we got a chance to talk to, uh, about this one. I hope everybody has enjoyed this as we're working our way to The Force Awakens. John and I will be doing a, another supplemental before The Force Awakens about four small ebooks that are coming about, about more characters that we saw in some of those pictures. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. That'll be in a few weeks after those are released. Really want to thank our associate producers who make sure that this kind of content can come to you here on the 602 Club. Kent Tripp and Davis Grayson, these guys are associate producers through Patreon, and I really appreciate those guys. Now, if you would like to find out more about how you can help the network the same way that these guys do, go to patreon.com slash trekfm. We are a listener-supported network, and that means that we need your help to make sure that this content keeps coming to you each, each and every week. What I love about Patreon and what it allows us to do for the listeners is that through your support, we can bring just content to you and not ads and all that kind of stuff mucking up your listening enjoyment. We just want to bring great content to you all throughout the Star Trek universe and beyond. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team and help bring this content to you each and every week. Now, John, before I let you go, uh, of course, from the 602 Club, which it's been great to be here with you again. Uh, it's always a joy. Where can everybody find you on the network, online? And I know you've got a few podcasts of your own that you do. Oh, well, thanks for asking, Matthew. Uh, of course, I love taking part in conversations on the Babel Conference. Um, and so you'll, you can find me there from time to time. You can find me on Twitter at Kessel Junkie. Um, that's my nom de plume over there. Uh, and you can actually find me on the Trek FM network as part of Commentary Trek Stars. Right now, we're going through uh, Simon Pegg's work as we're doing uh, the final season leading up to Star Trek Beyond. We're looking at all of the creators who are creating Star Trek Beyond and looking at their non-Trek work so that we can try to get a focus on what we can expect. Um, and then you can also find me on a podcast called Words with Nerds, which drops on Thursdays in iTunes and Stitcher and all the others. Uh, I co-host that with my buddy Craig. And then I do the occasional uh, actual Star Wars-focused reviews. And I'm starting to branch out a little bit on uh, showvote.com. Awesome, man. Uh, well, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about this together. Uh, if anybody wants to find me online, you can do that at mrushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram at mrushing, where Trek FM is as well. So make sure to check that out. You can find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine, and then on Literary Treks with Dan Gunther, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, as well as interview the authors about the latest books. You can also find me on my own personal website at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com, which I'll direct you there because I just wrote an article for a magazine called Metropolis Magazine in Japan that uh, Christopher Jones actually works for mm. about the upcoming Star Wars The Force Awakens, uh, so you can check that article out It's there. a fantastic article. 
It really is. Well, I, I've so. had the pleasure of reading it. It's a wonderful article. Well, I really appreciate that, man. Uh, hopefully everybody will enjoy it as well. Let me know what you thought uh, on any of those places, any of those venues, and of course the Babel Conference. And thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you.